Thank you so much for coming out this morning. I am impressed. Saturday in Vegas, last day of conference, and you guys are all here. We really appreciate your support. And we're going to talk a little bit this morning about pain management in the elderly. Uh, we have, I am, uh, was on the Speaker's Bureau for Daichi Sankyo, just to disclose, and Tanya has nothing to disclose. So today, we're going to talk about different types of pain and their typical presentation in the elderly. We're going to talk about the differences in when we age in pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and why this is important on the medications that we choose and the doses that we institute. And we're going to t go through a case and we're going to talk about pharmacological therapies for pain management in the older adult. So what a pain, right? Well, as we get older, we're finding that we are having more and more pain management issues in our elderly. Just for the fact, one of the reasons is because we're aging. About 70% of patients have cancer-related deaths. And those patients primarily have a lot of pain management issues, especially for cancer pain. In our elderly, we often undertreat it for many reasons. And there also can lead to um, altered mentor status. We always think that if we use too many opioids or too many pain medications, that could cause delirium. But the others is true also. If a patient is in pain, they can become delirious just from the fact that their pain is that severe. So we're going to talk a bit about what we can do for these patients. Pain occurs in about 50 to 65% of older adults. And it's not any difference between men and women. So equally as, a, equally as um, issue with a man or a woman when we age. And it's often underreported because sometimes people cannot report the pain. There's not a lot of data in this patient population. And we have vulnerable suspects. Suspects, listen to me. Oh, my God, it is morning. Subjects. We have vulnerable subjects of our dementia patients. They're not really able to tell us what's going on with their pain. I have a 94-year-old child who's my mom. And... She has spinal stenosis and was controlled pretty well on an antidepressant in the day. Well, now she's in a nursing home. She has pretty severe, severe dementia. And in the morning, every morning she would get up and she'd start hitting them when they try to get her up in the morning. That's not my mom. She was this cute little Italian lady. She never would do things like that, right? But in the morning, she, when they were trying to get her up out of bed, she would become nasty and pull people's hair. So I just looked at her meds. Oh, wow. They took her off her antidepressant that they were using for pain and switched it. So I'm like, why don't we just try a couple of Tylenol, a couple of acetaminophen, excuse me, for her in the morning. Every morning now, they give her two tabs of acetaminophen, and she exhibits none of those behaviors. But she could not tell anyone that she was having a lot of pain. So under treatment can cause these issues. It can cause, you know, impaired quality of life. People don't want to talk to each other if they're in pain. They can't sleep, and that's a vicious cycle. You don't sleep, your pain gets worse can cause some cognitive impairment and worsening of that, and disability, and people don't want to eat. So they can become malnour malnourished just for the fact that they're having a lot of pain. So there's some challenges in this population, right? Pain can be underreported. There's a lot of comorbidities that we have to deal with, renal failure, hepatic failure, things like that. We'll talk about those changes in the aging and how that can affect your choices of medications. We have those metabolic changes that we're talking about more sensitive to medications, so you may see more side effects. You may see more treatment-related complications in these patients. And as I said, sometimes it's just really difficult to communicate or to understand that they are having pain. 
impacts so many areas of our life, even in general for all of us, where you're not sleeping well, you're not eating well, you're not being able to maintain relationships with people, you're not having a good quality of life, you become anxious, you become afraid of that pain, you're afraid to move because of the pain. I have so many patients that I take care of, they're like, I'm like, how's your pain? Great. As long as I don't move. Well, what good is that? I mean, you have to move. If your pain is there all the time and you're not moving because of it, that's not a great way to live your life, right? And some people, there's a lot of culture that has to do with this. Oh, this is a punishment. I'm getting punished from what I did from when I was younger. I just have to deal with this pain. Or some, you know, cultures are very stoic. Italian culture is not so much. We're like very verbal about when we're having pain. But there's other cultures that can be kind of very stoic and not really want to report it and want to look like that they're bucking up and they're taking care of the pain. So here's a question we're going to start with, and we'll just do some hand raisings. So what do you think is the following is true about acute and chronic pain? And you guys have been here a week, so let's see how, how this conference uh, taught us well, right? Do we see a lot of objective signs, blood pressure, heart rate, in both acute and chronic? Who says that one? Okay. There's a known etiology in both acute and chronic pain. Nobody with that one. Okay, good. Pain is proportionate to the cause in acute and chronic pain. There may be an emotional component. That's pretty much it, right? There is supposedly, in our acute pain, maybe a lot of these are true for acute pain, but in chronic pain, Two-thirds of what is going on in, in driving that pain is often thoughts and emotions. So that's something that we even have to deal with in our elderly population. A lot of negative effects on pain, right? So people become depressed, whether they're depressed before or after chicken aid, what came first, right? But a lot of depression. I if I was constantly in pain, I may be depressed. I'm not able to do the things I enjoy doing. I'm not hanging out with my friends and enjoying myself. I can't sleep. Maybe I'm going to be more at risk of falling because I'm not able to really calm and I'm really edgy and moving around a lot and I can't participate. This is a huge piece, right? So if you need rehabilitation and you're in pain and you can't participate in it, you're not going to really become back to function. We're seeing more and more increased costs for healthcare and we may also be at risk for memory impairment because of that pain. When you're in pain, you can't talk to people. When you're trying to interview someone and they're having a lot of pain, you really have to try to get that pain under control first. Otherwise, somebody's not going to be able to really talk to you or be able to verbalize what they're feeling because all they're thinking about and all they're dealing with is that severe pain. So let's talk a little bit about different kinds of pain. Nociceptive pain, that's our normal pain, right? With nociceptive pain, we often just, it's, it actually is functional pain. It is telling us something not to do, right? You put your hand on a hot stove. That's hot and it's gonna burn you. That pain is functional. It's telling you, your brain is telling you to get your hand away from that hot stove so you don't continue to burn your hand. The brain is responsible for this pain perception. And we can tell what kind of pain someone's having by asking them to describe it. What does it feel like? Achy, throbbing, that's more of a nociceptive pain um, type of uh, description, right? Neuropathic pain. This is no longer functional. But we often can find a reason why we have neuropathic pain. So I have multiple sclerosis. I have nerve pain in my feet. My feet burn. That is a weird pain, to be honest with you, to describe. It burns, it tingles. It felt like it, when I was having an exacerbation, I was walking on rocks. It was very uncomfortable. 
but it's not a normal kind of pain. So a lot of people, when you're asking them to describe it and they're having trouble describing it, oftentimes it could be neuropathic pain because people are used to having an ache, a toothache, you know, a sprained ankle. That's nociceptive pain, and that's what we're used to when we think about pain. But these, so sometimes you may have to coax someone and put a bunch of descriptions out there and see what they tell you that type of pain is. So it's often described as burning, tingling, stabbing, shock, and it also can move from one place to another. So if a pain is radiating from the back down the legs, that's a really good clue that it's neuropathic pain. Acute pain comes on, there's an expected healing time. We know what's causing it. The intensity is often proportionate to the cause. And there's objective signs. You're going to see your blood pressure go up. You're going to see grimacing. You're going to see anxiety and fear. But with chronic pain, it's a longer duration. It's pain that exists after you expected that healing time to occur. May or may not be associated with any clinical findings or illness. And it's disproportionate to the etiology. It's almost like a hallucinating pain. It's like a pain, it's like an alarm, a smoke alarm going off in your body without fire. And that's what happens when our pain systems become sensitized. There may not be any objective signs. People learn to live with it. They learn to not show that they're having a lot of pain. Our vital signs kind of normalize in chronic pain. But you will see a lot of influences on mood. We have a lot of sources for our pain in the older adults. As we get older, our bones and joints they wear down a bit, right? So you see more back pain, arthritis pain, joint pain, post-op pain, headaches, leg cramps a lot in our elderly, right? And we see a lot, maybe more nerve pain because of diabetes as we you know, get older and our diabetes worsens. We may see more peripheral neuropathies. We may see more herpes zoster or nerve injury from surgeries or amputations that we may need. Cancer-related pain also as we, as we get older. So we need to assess what kind of pain someone's having. There's different tools we can use. There's behavioral pain assessment tools. I'll show you a few examples of that. We need to minimize physiologic indicators and reassess this pain. So we need to find out what's going on with our patient. We need to put an intervention in place, but the biggest piece is that follow-up. Because in our elderly, we're going to be starting a lot lower. But if it's not working at that dose, we may need to increase that dose, right? So that follow-up is huge. This is a good little mnemonic that we can use for pain management to remember what questions you ask, okay? What made, what's causing the pain? When did it start? What makes it better? Is it there all the time? What's it feel like, that quality? That gives you a description on what kind of pain it is. Does it stay in one place or does it move from one area of body to the other? How severe is it? Usually we use that zero to 10 scale for our severity indicators. The temporal pattern, is it coming and going or is it there all the time, right? That will maybe influence on whether you're gonna do something around the clock or you're gonna do something as needed. But be careful because a lot of times we have someone on PRN medications, as needed medications, and you ask them, is your pain there all the time? And they say no, because they're taking pain medications. So a lot of times the way I ask that question is, if you were not taking any medications, would your pain be there all the time? And I get a more accurate answer from that. And the biggest piece, we talk about this, we've used high doses of opioids for years and we haven't seen increases in function. Very important if we're gonna be using medications that we assess 
increases and improvement in our functional ability. That is the purpose of trying to get our pain under control. It's to allow people to function, allow people to do things that they enjoy doing, gardening, things like that, that they're not able to do because of the pain. It's very important to try to find that balance and do a good quality of life. This is just our numerical pain scale, zero to 10. We have a faces pain scale. Important to know what this is, it's not necessarily what that face looks like, it's what that face feels like. Point to what you are feeling, but you may not look like you're grimacing, like number four or number five, but that's the way you're feeling. Sometimes a thermometer scale may be beneficial for someone. It's, you know, kind of related to a temperature. Is it the pain really hot? Is it really bad? And as you go up, it turns from blue to red, similar to, you know, that importance of how bad is that pain intensity. This one I use all the time because really our demented patients, patients that are delirious, may not be able to report what their pain is, as in my mom's example. So this scale here takes into account different activities and things that someone who isn't able to communicate may be demonstrating. So are they breathing out? Is there uh, hyperventilation because of the pain for the breathing piece? Are people calling out, yelling, screaming, moaning? Are they grimacing? Are, are you rigid? Are you crying out? Are you punching out? And when you try to console someone that's in a lot of pain, they're most often unable to console. So this is a zero to 10 scale, basically. It'll, it'll score out similar to a zero to 10 scale, but it is much more practical to use in someone who is not able to tell you about their pain. So we utilize this scale in patients with cognitive impairment, and we can also use reports from family, family members, caregivers, nurses, right? If they're in the hospital, our nurses can tell us, I go to them first because they're with the patient all day long. So many reports that I read in the medical record, pain controlled. Because like I said, someone just went in and said, how's your pain? Well, they gave you a pain med an hour ago. My pain is fine. Not necessarily, what's the worst pain you've had in the last 24 hours? What's the best pain you've had in the last 24 hours? What's your pain level before and after we give you a dose of medication? That'll give you a much better idea if that pain is controlled or not. And then I'll look and I'll see that they use six as needed pain medications a day. In the chart, it says pain is controlled. I don't consider that controlled if they're using a medication every four hours as needed. That doesn't seem to me be controlled to me. And you have to be careful though, when you're talking to your caregivers, they'll often overestimate the pain. So patients, they don't want their family member suffering. So they're gonna come out and want you to make them feel better because they don't like to watch suffering. Versus physicians, nurses will actually undertreat it. They minimize often, sometimes, not always, can minimize someone's report of the pain. So any older adult, very sick, frail individual, you wanna start low. But like I said, you should increase it if it's not working. Caveat with that, don't keep increasing it if it's not working. Might not be the right medication for the patient. If you're not getting any pain control, using an opioid, for example, and you keep going up and up on that dose, you're gonna just get some side effects, serious side effects from that. Maybe it's not the right medication for that patient. Don't forget about acetaminophen, one of my favorite drugs in the elderly. The lowest effective dose for the shortest duration, 
avoid polypharmacy. That gets us in trouble a lot with our elderly patients. Avoid starting medications all at the same time. Because if they have a side effect from you started three medications at once and they had a side effect, how do you know which one it is? You just eliminated three medications that can possibly help your patient. So rational polypharmacy. Is there a medication I can use that might help a patient's depression and their pain, their anxiety and their pain? This way I get away with one versus two medications. So this is just a slide showing multimodal analgesia and how important that is for strategies of managing pain. It's not just a drug. There's other things we can do. We can do physical therapy. We can do swimming. We can do devices. Positioning. Hot cold packs. Complementary medicines. Lifestyle changes. Can someone do some exercise? It's hard to exercise when you're in pain, but that ends up often making that pain better. Is there anything that our pain management experts and in anesthesia can do as far as interventional techniques. And this is huge, that psychosocial support, especially in chronic pain. I am constantly getting consulted on patients that may have chronic pain and it may be influenced by their toxin emotions and I try to stress to them how much their pain system is broken and how that fear of the pain often drives the pain. A lot of non-pharmacologic, I talked a lot about this. Interventional treatments listed here. So we must balance benefit versus burden. We use the least invasive oral whenever you can. Start at lower doses, about 30 to 50% less than what you would do for all of us. Reassess frequently and try to balance that pain relief and quality of life like I've been stressing. So we have a lot of options out there. A Little bit about changes in our bodies and the elderly and why it's important to know about these different changes. You have slowered transit time in your GI system. Does that mean you're going to absorb more of that medication? We have less muscle mass. We have increased body fat as we get older and decreased water. So that's going to affect our lipophilic, our fat-loving drugs, right? You may need to have, we're going to have a depot effect with that. So you may need to extend that interval out on something, somebody that has a lipophilic drug. Maybe in hydrophilic drugs, drugs that like water, we may need to lower those doses. You have to watch out for highly protein-bound drugs because we don't have as much protein-binding ability as we age. We lose that. So we may see increased concentrations because of that protein-binding effect. Kidneys. you got to watch out for kidney impairment. When we talk about opioids, most of our opioids are liver metabolized, so we have to worry about it with the metabolism. But in certain opioids, morphine for an example, you eliminate the metabolites through the kidneys. So if your kidneys aren't working, you're not eliminating those metabolites, and that can be neurotoxic. You can see someone start to twitch. You can see confusion. That could really lead to very severe coma, things like that, because of that neurotoxicity from those metabolites. Because just in general, those numbers may look normal when you're looking at a serum creatinine, but think about it. We don't have as much muscle mass. Muscle mass produces creatinine. So if you don't have a lot of muscle mass, you don't have a lot of protein in your body because of elderly not eating well, what's going to happen is that serum creatinine is going to appear normal, but really your kidney function is not going to be normal, especially as you get into the old, old. So start low, go slow. We want to decrease our doses and, free, and or the frequency of these medications. We could get away with a lot lower doses. We want to decrease initial dose of high extraction drugs and then hydrophilic drugs, as I had mentioned. 
and frequency of those lipophilic drugs. Pharmacodynamic changes. This is when we can't figure out what's going on with that patient. We're more sensitive to things as we get older. Anticholinergics being one of the things that, I, that comes to mind. The beers list that's out there, which we'll talk about in a little bit. When you have many anticholinergic drugs and our elderly are using that, we really have increased confusion, sedation, risk of falls. So these are all pharmacodynamic changes that we're seeing with our elderly. So now I'm going to turn it over to Tanya to take over for the rest of the talk. Thank you. Thank you. Nothing like starting your uh, talk off with a quiz. So the teachers arrived just giving you a pop quiz. I'll switch over to um, a, a quick interactive question here um, and see what you guys think. Which of the following agents is considered a Beers List medication and should be avoided in the older adult? Um, how many people think that's duloxetine or Cymbalta for a brand name purpose? Okay, ibuprofen. A few more hands. Oxycodone. A few hands. I feel like it's kind of even. And then gabapentin. A lot more hands. So the trick about this question is the big letters avoided. So um, a lot of these medicines are called out as to be used with caution and for various different reasons. But, <clears throat> excuse me, the... the Word avoided is really, thank you, the medication would be ibuprofen that should be avoided. Everything else should really be, can be used, but we should use, dose slow, go slow, all of those other good things. Um, okay, there it goes, turns red, beautiful. <laughs> so, um, all right, here's some of our beers list medications. The beers list was recently updated in 2019, which is the year we're in. Good thing, I'm not delirious. Okay, um, so that's a good thing. Um, so... These are some of the medications that they call out as potentially having problems or, you know, not being the first choice, especially in older adults. Um, mostly you'll see, if you're familiar with some of these medications, first of all, a lot of our pain medicines, whether or not they're under the pain category, they are used for pain, right? So uh, you'll see your muscle relaxants on there. And in the world of our opioid, you know, epidemic here, we're all turning to other agents. But like, look at these agents, and many of them ha that we're turning to have these anticholinergic properties. Some of them have a lot of serotonergic properties. And with all the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic changes in our older adult, you realize that these medications, these patients may be very sensitive to. I mean, I'm sensitive to them. Now, I'm approaching older adult, but I'm not near it yet, right? So <laughs> every year that goes by, I get a little older. Um, and so the, um, the truth is, even when I take a medication, oftentimes it has some of these properties, I feel extremely tired or extremely dizzy. And so, uh, you know, that just impact, as we get older, that impact increases. And so um, you can see your list here, things that fall under these medication classes, things like TCAs, your amitriptyline, your nortriptyline, SNRIs, there's your duloxetine, your venlafaxine. Um, we all know about benzodiazepines. We'll be talking more about those later if you're sticking around. So come by and hear us talk some more about benzodiazepines. Um, and then your things like your sedative hypnotics, right, our Z drugs. So you're very probably familiar with a lot of these drugs, but we have to be super careful in our older adults. The update um, from 2015 to 2019, we just wanted to call out kind of what a few of the major changes were. So they did call out drug-drug interactions with opioids, specifically those benzodiazepines, um, and an increased risk for overdose as, you know, in any population. And then... Um, together opioids and gabapentinoids. So that also, again, we know can increase risk of sedation, falls, respiratory depression. Uh, same thing for our older adults. And then 
for there's our SNRI or duloxetine, uh, and remembering that we should use caution for history, patients with history of falls. Um, same thing for uh, tramadol with SIDH, SIADH, um, and hyponatremia risk, and any other real um, serotonergic medications, same thing. And then uh, they call out aspirin, too, and talk about patients uh, using caution in anyone who's older 70 or before it had been over 80 years old. So just some what may seem like minor changes, but um, really important in just the, the whole framework of the current situation and how we're using our medications. Um, so that being said, that leads nicely into opioids. Um, opioids have been suggested a number of years ago by the American Geriatric Society for use in older adults, in addition to acetaminophen, if needed. And so I think that's probably up for a change sometime soon, our review. Um, but it is we do use opioids a lot in our older adults because some of our other drugs can be very dangerous. Um, generally, as Maria very nicely reviewed, uh, we can get away with much lower doses of opioids. And when we're thinking about what drug to choose, we want to really think about the pharmacokinetics of the particular agent, how it's dosed compared to whatever they're currently on, um, and any adverse effects that we're particularly worried about. And we'll talk more about that in one minute. We want to think about our adjuvants or our co-analgesics, often our first-line agents, right, those uh, non-opioids. And then we want to frequently reassess because pain is a moving target. We can't just say that the pain's, you know, now it's better and in five minutes we can still assume it's better. So we want to reassess what is happening with the pain, but also what our goals are, right, and our expectations. I'm sure you're tired of hearing about that after a week of this pain stuff. Um, so here's a, a good, nice, long list of drugs for you of opioids. I'm not going to spend an hour. I could spend an hour on this slide, but I won't. Um, I'll just make sure I cover kind of the highlights. So uh, we all know morphine. We all you know, are probably friendly with morphine to some extent. When I teach um, anybody who's a learner, generally, I often ask, is there an agent that you want to avoid in the older adult? And what do you think I get is the answer, for an opioid at least? I get morphine, right? They all say you shouldn't give morphine to our older adults. And is that true? Has anybody ever given morphine to an older adult? Has anyone an older adult and taken morphine, right? Yeah, so people have done that, and they've done okay. And so it's, the issue is, as Maria talked a lot about, it's more about the dose and the interval than it is about the agent, right? So morphine is actually one of our le less potent drugs. So I can give somebody very little morphine if I want to give somebody very little opioid, and I can still be giving them opioid, and they may still have a response. So I can give someone 2.5 milligrams of oral morphine. That is very little morphine, and they can maybe be okay. And so um, it's really about the potency of the drug and thinking about, the age, we might just need a much lower dose. And so while we think that morphine might not be ideal for our older adult because it can accumulate in renal impairment, and we know as we get older, our kidneys don't function as well, just naturally. Um, so we think morphine can accumulate and would be dangerous, but if we stick with the low dose and we extend our intervals, we may do okay. Um, other drugs included on here is just a very comprehensive list. We, and I'm not, I guess I can't, I don't have an hour to go over the whole thing, but we think a lot about um, as I did when I trained a number of years ago in hospice and palliative medicine, um, we used a lot of methadone in our older adults. And people kind of think, no, 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 don't do that. But methadone's a really strong drug, right? You can give very little bit of methadone and go a really long way. And if you've heard uh, Lynn McPherson talk, you know that that's how she feels. Um, and that's who I trained with. And so she always taught me that we can use a little methadone and get pretty far. And so I've had some pretty good success in some of my older adults using one or two milligrams of methadone at bedtime where they get a little better sleep and then they have pretty uh, decent duration of action through the day for pain control. So um, 
that's just one of the things I wanted to call out. We want to be really careful with the last three drugs on this list, the codeine, the tramadol, and the pentadol, right? Because these drugs, first of all, codeine, does anybody know and love codeine for pain? Keep my hand down. <laughs> um, so codeine for pain we know is riddled with problems, right? We know that it's a pro-drug. It requires uh, one of the cytochrome P450 enzymes to be metabolized to morphine, which is its active metabolite that actually gives pain control. We know that a good handful of us in this room may actually hyper-metabolize and get a lot of morphine out of codeine, and a handful of us may actually not get any morphine out of codeine, depending on how our genetics are and how our livers function. So um, ideally, we would avoid codeine for someone who has real severe pain, and in our older adults, because they can be super sensitive to this drug, and we're not going to know what metabolism rate they're actually going to have, right? So um, that's one thing I wanted to mention. And then tramadol and tapentadol, we already know those are beers list drugs. They have a lot of serotonergic properties and can uh, increase the risk of falls in our older adults. Um, you've probably heard a bit about buprenorphine this week as well. Buprenorphine for pain for our older adult is something to think about because it is such a low dose. It is pretty well tolerated and it comes in a nice patch. It can be, you know, it's not something we have to remember to take all the time. If we have chronic pain, low level, not something we're escalating doses on. Buprenorphine is something to think about. It has some antidepressant effects, so it may be a decent agent for our older adults as well. Um, okay, so when we want to think about our dosing, we want to remember equianalgesia. It's super, super duper important, right, because I work in a hospital setting, and I see all too often patients started on morphine at a very low dose and switched over to hydromorphone at a what, see, what patients, what people think is an equianalgesic dose, but for example, they give morphine one milligram and a PCA, and this is IV, right? And then they, they say, oh, it's not working, so they switch over to hydromorphone one milligram. Does that sound like an equianalgesic conversion to you? No, right? We know that hydromorphone is much stronger than morphine. Okay, great. So now the patient has good pain control, but what happens? What does that patient say to you next time they come in and you don't have hydromorphone because it's on drug shortage and you have to give them a morphine PCA or prescription and send them home with morphine? Their insurance isn't covering anything else. It doesn't work, right? They're going to tell you it doesn't work, but the reality is they just got too low of a dose. So remember, equianalgesia is really, really important. And another kind of spin on equianalgesia where I've had some good success is the numbers. People love numbers, right? So if I'm giving you like five of something versus 0.5 of something, what's going to work better? five, right? Just because it's five. It doesn't matter if it's <laughs> what the drug is. So I've had some good kind of like being successes being like, okay, I'm going to switch you over from oxycodone to morphine. And then my number's a little bigger. And people are like, oh, wow, that works better. Yeah. Okay. Right. Good. Maybe it really does work better, but the psychology of it is pretty cool. Um, so Anyways, think about that equianalgesia, really important. And especially when we're switching opioids, like I just mentioned, remember there is incomplete cross-tolerance. So even if you get that math and it seems like it's right, I go with my gut and I usually will lower my dose. Okay, so we all have heard and probably have been beaten over the head with the opiate-induced adverse effects. Also on this slide should be our long-term adverse effects, which you're probably pretty familiar with. You know, our immunosuppression, our gene adrenal changes um, that can be uh, an issue when people are on these medications for a long time. And so we know that most of these side effects patients get um, tolerance to. And what's interesting is the constipation one. So um, many of us probably do chronic pain, yes? And many of us may have seen patients on opioids for chronic pain, yes? Do those patients get constipated? No, right? So I think you do get tolerance to constipation. And so, yeah, why we should screen it and we should recommend our Senate and we should do all of those good things. We should also realize that the constipation stuff, 
the, the fact that people don't get tolerance comes from cancer patient studies, and that's probably because we're escalating doses in those patients, and so they're not getting tolerant. But when you're on a level set dose for a while, it seems most patients, uh, their guts kind of tend to get used to it. Um, and if they don't, we have things we can do, right? So. Anyway, so it's important to be comprehensive. It's also important to remember that um, if someone starts to look funky or wonky, that we want to cut back our dose, right? So again, I work in a hospital. We're just starting to bring a lot of stewardship into our hospital around opioids. And um, a lot of outpatient stuff has been done, but on the inpatient side, it hasn't. And so our nurses are um, just starting to actually do regular routine monitoring for sedation. Because remember that sedation comes before respiratory depression, yes? So if we can catch it early, then we're doing better. And so it's important to educate anybody, our older adults, anybody, on what comes first, what comes second, right? So if someone is harder to wake up, <clears throat> excuse me, then we should probably be thinking about, hmm, what's going on? Oftentimes it's not just the opioid. Someone's getting sicker, we've added another drug, right? There's other things going on. Um, but if, if the opioid is part of it, obviously we want to make sure they know that that could be part of it. Excuse me. Okay. Um, so I just think that's important to call out because there are scales you can use if you work in an inpatient setting. Um, the Pacero Opioid-Induced Sedation Scale is a really nice scale because it gives the nurse some direction on where to go with if someone's eyes are rolling. We've all seen it, right? Someone's eyes are rolling back in their head or you're talking to them and they're, they're kind of like, woo, dozy. If you've seen that, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so here's your basic opiate equivalency chart. I've already alluded to all of this. And just for good measure, you can see the hydromorphone um, conversion to the morphine conversion, so the IV of 10 milligram of morphine to 1.5 of hydromorphone. Right there, you see how um, the one of morphine IV to the one of hydromorphone IV is not a good idea, and why one might work a lot better than the other. Um, you may have heard or seen about some new conversion charts. Um, remember the populations we're thinking about when we're thinking about our population, our charts. I stick with the old chart because it's what I've used for 12 years, so I'm going to keep using <laughs> the same chart I know and love, and I'm not going to make changes in how I practice just, just because of a number, but the new chart is out there. There's a lot of information out there. And if you are using it, just remember who you're using it in and be comfortable with it. Whatever conversion ratio you use for anything, it should be the one you're comfortable using, right? The one you've been using for a long time. When we make changes, you know, it's important to just think about your, your practice. Okay, um, so here's a case. So here's our friend, and this is cancer pain. So we'll go through a couple of different types of pain because Maria pointed out a few different types, and now we're going to kind of walk through them a little bit. So we have an 82-year-old man. He has pancreatic cancer, and he's getting um, a Percocet or oxycodone acetaminophen, 10-325. He's taking two every four hours around the clock, and um, he reports he has an allergy to morphine. So when he takes 12 tablets a day, his pain is well-controlled. I'm going to ask for quick, immediate responses. Anybody have a response or thought? It's a lot of Tylenol. So do we think that's a lot of acetaminophen for him? Potentially, right? Anything else? What was that? Scheduled. Yeah, so, um, right, so scheduled, and then what else? Long acting, so maybe he needs a long acting, right? Um, and the only other thing I think is, what is his allergy to morphine? What do you think his allergy is? Itching, probably, right? Itching or nausea or constipation, right? That's what it is, Most, almost for sure. Um, and so is that really an allergy? No, right? So educating him about that, great opportunity to do that. Um, and then we probably could use morphine in this, in this gentleman. Um, okay, so what do you want to do? Here's another quiz. You guys love me. I keep quizzing you. Um, so what do you want to do to provide safe and effective analgesia? So who wants to discontinue the oxycodone acetaminophen and start oxycodone 10 without the acetaminophen every four hours as needed? I got 
maybe one or fifty. Discontinue oxycodone acetaminophen and start oxycodone 20 every 12 as needed. Thank God no one said that one. Okay, good. <laughs> um, continue oxycodone, continue, not just continue, continue oxycodone acetaminophen and start oxycodone ER6 Q12. And finally, discontinue oxycodone acetaminophen and start oxycodone ER60 Q12. So stop the Percocet and start the long acting. Few hands. And nobody wants to do any of this. Are there people who want to do something completely different? Yes, me. <laughs> but if you had to pick the best answer of these, I would say it's probably to start the long acting. I don't think that's necessarily the dose I would start, but that's the best option here. And probably discontinue the oxycodone acetaminophen and go to the plain immediate release oxycodone because this is a cancer patient who may need, we may need to increase doses on and we do have the Tylenol as a limitation in the ability to do that um, and use the acetaminophen as a scheduled more regular drug if we're gonna use it. Um, so when I start my long actings, I usually don't start with the full dose, right? If you did a conversion from his oxycodone, you'd get 120 milligrams of oxycodone per day from how much Percocet he was taking. I'm probably going to start half of that. So I might start more like 30 Q12, at most 40. This is an older gentleman. We don't know how he's going to respond to extend and release product. I actually probably wouldn't start oxycodone ER at all because his insurance isn't going to cover it. Um, but that's just reality. Um, and But with his allergy to morphine, you might be able to get it covered. So Anyways, you might start a little bit lower, but definitely take out the acetaminophen. Use it more for its intended purpose on you know, a more regular scheduled program, um, and then give him immediate release oxycodone. And there's probably a thousand other things you could do, but based off the information we have here, this is probably how I would proceed. Oh, question. Yeah, so the, the comment was because you may not be able to hear what was said. Um, some of the things you might want to elucidate from the patient was how is he sleeping because that may be more of even compelling reason to start a longer acting, even just at bedtime, to get him through the night so he doesn't have to wake up overnight. Um, and then thinking about if we take out the acetaminophen, making sure that we add it back, he may need it in the day. It may actually be helping this patient, um, and we, you know, we don't want to lose that. So thank you for that. Yes. Yeah, so you, you're going to keep your PRN Q4, and hopefully he doesn't need it, right, anymore. But if he were to need it, he could have it there. So you want to be careful because sometimes these patients are so used to taking it every four that they're going to keep taking it every four. And if that's this guy, then you probably don't want to do the long acting in him. Yeah. And so the thought is if he has the immediate release, he's going to take it anyway, so increase the immediate release. And I think that's very patient-dependent, right? So, like, a lot of our patients will just, they've been taking it. This is just what they do. And if that's, if he's got it and he's going to take it anyway, he's that kind of guy. We're going to use a much lower, you know, extended release and go more on the immediate release because that's his who he is and how he believes in things. And, and I agree. A lot of the times patients feel the immediate release work, so they take that and they rely on that much more than the extended release. So I think, you know, without a whole lot of extra information, this is... The, the gist of it, right? But like, there's a lot of other things we might want to know or do. Okay, thanks everybody. Um, 
So just uh, in, to follow up on that, we usually do use right the around the clock for cancer pain patients um, because they frequently have unpredictable recurring pain. And then that as needed dose, remember, should be 10 to 15% of your total daily dose. So whatever your total OxyContin is in this case, in this case, it's um, 120 milligrams. You want to give this guy at least 15 milligrams of oxycodone equivalent as needed. It's a question over there. Yes. Yes, yeah, so you could continue this as a, you want to continue a PRN, right? So if we discontinued a PRN altogether, we would just give this guy an extended release. So this, this question, the answers, I think you could pick, depending on how you proceeded, one or either C or D, um, right? So yeah, you could pick either one, um, but you want to make sure, I think the reason we picked C is to make sure that we say you continue an as needed. My preference would be to continue it without the acetaminophen and then use the acetaminophen on its own. Um, but I think the point we were trying to make by picking C is don't stop the PRN and just use a long acting, not in the cancer patients. Um, thank you. And okay, so then moving on to chronic pain, which is a different world, right? Um, so remembering, as we've all heard, opiates are not going to be our first line. We all know that. Um, but we want to remember that there may be patients who do benefit from them. And so assessing that and if function is improving, potentially that is the right medication for some of these patients. Um, we want to maximize our non-opiate and non-farm stuff. And remember that a lot of states and insurances are following the CDC guidelines. And so you probably already know that and are experiencing all the prior authorization limitations and everything else. Um, and so we just have to be mindful of that depending on where Okay, so here's our case for chronic pain. We have a guy with coronary artery disease, hypertension, BPH, severe joint pain, wakes up in the mornings, takes him a number of hours to get moving, achy and sore joints, knees hurt, hips hurt. Um, he's only tried an occasional acetaminophen, and he's worried the pain's going to prevent him now from being able to care for his sick wife, who um, he has to continue on. If, he, if the pain continues, he won't be able to continue on in this way. Okay, so what do you recommend for Mr. BB? Tramadol? Uh, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, or oxycodone? Who says tramadol? Who says acetaminophen? Okay, Maria's proud of you. Um, who says ibuprofen? <laughs> and who says oxycodone? So a number of different ideas, and I think you could take this one or two different, a few different ways even. Um, but remember that he tried acetaminophen, but he tried like one dose here or there, right? And so he probably needs a regular schedule of acetaminophen before we say acetaminophen doesn't work uh, for this gentleman. And given his age and all he has going on, it probably would be our first line is to schedule that acetaminophen given the, the limited risk of doing that. Um, there we go. So remember, acetaminophen is a drug of choice for mild to moderate pain in the elderly. Uh, it's our initial treatment for osteoarthritis. We often use it in combination with opioids if we need opioids. Um, it is not a medicine that has an effect on inflammation. If you went to the systemic OTC analgesics talk, you heard a lot about acetaminophen, so I don't need to talk too much about that, um, hopefully. And then it has a really good safety profile. Remember, maximum doses. So four grams a day is for most folks. Uh, as people get older, the recommendation may be more like three grams a day on a more chronic basis. Um, and then if you have any kind of liver dysfunction, renal dysfunction, you want to stick closer to the two gram per day total. Um, and remember that most of the literature excludes older adults. There were some recent therapeutic reviews saying acetaminophen doesn't work for low back pain, doesn't work for different kinds of pain, but older adults weren't included. So we can't necessarily generalize that information out. Um, NSAIDs, we already talked about how these probably should be avoided in our older adults. Uh, a large percentage of at, um, emergency room admissions 
actually come from the use of NSAIDs in our older adults. So if an older adult is admitted to the ED, it could very well be due to partially um, them having taken an NSAID along the way. So um, just be really careful. Think about topicals with these drugs. If we can, instead of systemic, lowest dose, shortest duration possible, right? Just good prescribing habits. Um, and thinking about if you have someone who may benefit from a short course of steroids even instead of the, the NSAIDs. Again, older adults and steroids, that can be very sensitive to that as well. So um, thinking about the increased risk of bleeding, and anybody who is older is already at an increased risk of bleeding, um, but then if they're on things like concomitant aspirin, concomitant serotonergic medications, or therapeutic anticoagulation, their risk dramatically goes up, so the risk of bleeding is like seven times higher, um, and we want to be super careful. You might want to reach for a COX-2, like silicoxib, in a patient has a higher risk of bleeding, and you may want to also add on a proton pump inhibitor, which has all of its own problems. So, um, you know, shortest duration, lowest dose possible again. Co-analgesics are often used um, off-label for pain. As we know, we want to individualize approach, and I think the most important thing is because patients will tell you, that one didn't work for me, so none of them will work for me. But remember, if gabapentin doesn't work right, pregabalin just might work. And just because they're in the same family doesn't mean one won't work for the other. Um, Speaking of gabapentin and pregabalin, I always, when I speak here, I remind everybody about vitamin G. It's in our water. We're all drinking it. We use a lot of gabapentin, right? So um, it's, it's all around. It's everywhere. And um, does anybody love gabapentin? Hate gabapentin? Somewhere in between. Okay. <laughs> Love-hate relationship. Um, so remember, these are good drugs for neuropathic pain. We use them a lot in multimodal analgesia for our acute pain um, as well have some anxiolytic properties, which is also nice and can help people sleep. Um, antidepressants, things like duloxetine, venlafaxine, and then nortriptyline, these are our, they have the noradrenergic component, and so these medications also um, can really be helpful for pain, and then also for mood, and potentially for sleep, depending on um, when you dose it and how you're dosing them. Cannabis, I can't speak as well to this as Maria Kenj, the cannabis queen, um, but uh, this is important to think about because this question even came up yesterday. What about our older adults who are who are using cannabis. There's not a lot of literature in our older adults in anything. So extrapolating from younger people to older people is, is what we do, but it's not necessarily the right thing. And so um, be very careful because they're going to potentially be more sensitive to the side effects of these medications. Start lower, go slower. Maria can really talk more a lot about this. Um, but remember that we, we want to, if we're going to use these agents in our older adults, monitor closely um, and really assess, 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 and reassess just because of how sensitive they are to some of the more central adverse effects. Um, okay, so how do you choose for mild to moderate pain? You're going to reach for your non-opioids usually or low-dose opioids. If you know an NSAID is contraindicated and acetaminophen is not working, you can also think about tramadol, but be super careful with the serotonergic properties and dizziness and falls. Um, for severe pain, you probably need opioids. Thinking about the pattern, is it worse at night? Is it worse in the day? Do you need a long-acting to help them get some rest? Um, a co-analgesics, which will help our opiates work better, and then using combinations of medications may be how we have to go. Although polypharmacy, we just have to be careful, right, because of all the adverse effects. Okay, so last case, we have a patient who's in acute pain. I already talked a lot about this, how she's, look at her medication. So she's 88, she had a hip uh, surgery, and she's on hydromorphone, one milligram every three hours as needed for pain. Is this appropriate? Yay. Thank you. My hand shouldn't be up. Nay, right? No, that's a huge dose for an older patient. And as far as we know, is not on anything prior to surgery. Um, so what should we do? <coughs> 
Um, we, we ask what kind of pain she's having in the interest of time. I'm going to give you the answer. Uh, as far as we know, it's acute nociceptive pain. It may be mixed. She might have some neuropathic pain in there. From the information I have, I don't think so, but she may, right? She's postoperative. We don't know what, what went on in there. Um, and so then what would you recommend to do? So you recommend to discontinue the IV hydromorphone. What else would you recommend for her pain? Um, so avoiding further opioids to decrease risk of delirium. Anybody? Acetaminophen, 1 gram Q8 on schedule. Gabapentin, 300 Q8. Or oxycodone, 5 Q4 PRN. So we're going with the acetaminophen because mostly of the dosing of other things. So we don't want to avoid opioids because if she's in pain and she needs an opioid, we should treat her pain, yes? Um, so we, may, we don't want to say avoid them, but we want to proceed with caution. Acetaminophen, 1 gram Q8, good, nice and scheduled. That's probably your, your best first step. 300 too high on a Q8 schedule for this poor little lady, right? And then oxycodone 5, Q4 may also be too high. You may want to start with two and a half, and you maybe have a five, you know, as needed for severe, two and a half for moderate, whatever, but that might also be a little too high. So definitely the acetaminophen. Um, so you want to keep in mind that pain is always subjective because it is, and that's what makes it so hard to treat, right? Like we have to trust each other when I tell you I'm in pain and I don't look like I'm in pain. Um, and then um, past experiences can influence how a patient perceives pain. So whatever happened last time is going to probably influence the, the next step. So remember that as we move forward, pain is highly prevalent in our older adults. There's lots of changes in our body and our composition and as how we, and when we get older that makes us more sensitive in general to medications and to changes. So we'll be super careful assessing how got there and then tailoring treatments for how it got there underlying cause always trying to treat that if possible avoiding those potentially inappropriate medications or proceeding very very cautiously and then remembering multimodal analgesia is really a good approach because if we can minimize any of those centrally acting medications we're going to help our patients and that's it I think I finished right on time <laughs> um, so if you have time to stay for questions that's great. If you don't, thank you. I appreciate your time so early this morning on Saturday. Yeah, a couple questions. Go ahead. Okay, for the years, um, what age does that kick in? 65. Yep. Yes. Low dose naltrexone. So that may be a consideration for certain disease states, especially if there's some kind of sensitization, things like fibromyalgia, things like that. Absolutely, and then the, the adverse effects with like low-dose naltrexone are not, it's not opioid adverse effects, right? So it may be better tolerated. Um, so definitely something that you could consider depending on the disease that you're treating. <laughs> For like low-dose naltrexone or? When, like, a low dose of something? To cut them, yeah, liquids. Liquids, concentrates are good. So, like, the roxycodone, you know, the 20 per one. And that's hard, right, because you have to now see a little number, too, right? So that is all, they're also very, very tricky um, to do. But the liquid would probably be your best bet. And then working with the pharmacy to have that drawn up, pre-drawn. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Sip 2D6. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes.
I would, if you can eliminate it from their equation, what's that? If it helps, then I would probably take it out of their combo and just let them use it in a more controlled fashion that you are controlling the dose. So schedule to acetaminophen at a lower dose potentially, up to two grams a day in that situation is totally fine. The challenge you might run into is, oh, I took a few extra Percocet today or something. And then, you know, they do that multiple days in a row, you might run into problems. So that's, I'd probably try and just control it a little bit more. Yeah. So from IR to ER, I usually reduce my dose in converting to an extended release um, because of they're getting more generally overall pain control. So hopefully they'll need less overall, um, and they still have the as needed if needed. And so the reason we just stuck with the 60Q12 and kept it, because it was cleaner math, it kind of just showed this is what you do. Um, but I, you definitely could lower that dose and start lower and then go up if you need to. I always recommend that. Um, anywhere between 25 and 50%. I usually go with a 30%. <laughs> and it, all can, it can also do with what formulations are available, right? Yeah, so, you know, you you're going from it. one dose to another, but how is it available and try to round it within that 25 to 50% to get to the right product that's available out there in, in the real world? Yep. If insurance will cover it. <laughs> Not too many insurances that. cover OxyContin anymore. <laughs> Richard? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And because, you know, sometimes when they're in the same position, especially at 80, they just seem to have a lot more pain. Even at close to 40, I can relate to that. Yes. I was at a hospital in Texas, and they had a reposition team. Oh, that's cool. Wow. That's wow, cool. that's that's neat. We've reposition Thanks, team. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so when I briefly touched on buprenorphine, that it's a really decent consideration for chronic pain in, in your older adult because it has some other benefits like potential antidepressant activity um, and because it, 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 you can use so little and get so far and you don't usually have escalating pain syndromes or it's kind of like a chronic you know, pain syndrome. And so, yes, yeah, Subutrans is something you could think about or even just like the Belbuca or something like that for starters. Absolutely. Yes, and so that if you're going to go for an opioid, butrans is a decent a decent consideration, um, especially if the pain is like not very variable, very chronic, consistent day to day. Yeah, absolutely. More chronic, yeah. I, I, butrans patches is not a bad idea in your older adult if you're reaching for an opioid. In a chronic, in a chronic situation, yeah. Okay, that's it. Everybody's gone.